Hello there, and welcome back to Well Not Perfect. I'm so excited to introduce this week's guest, David Gray. He is a fellow therapist and good friend of mine. He's a licensed psychotherapist and owner of Gray Matters, a private practice in the Chicagoland area. He is a trained therapist who assists clients who use psychedelic medicine for therapeutic purposes and contributes to the growing evidence that psychedelic medication is a promising option for the field of mental health treatment. This treatment modality is up and coming in the therapy world, with groundbreaking research being done for its uses in treating major depressive disorder, PTSD, addictions, and so much more. Listen in to hear what David has to say about his professional and personal experience with this type of treatment. When you look at the nature of these medicines, it's, it's not that we're a bunch of hippies sitting around getting high, just utilizing them to transcend our, our physical state. There's, there is mind expansioning that happens. There is different things that come along with that, but if a lot of that has been either over glorified or over stigmatized in a negative manner which gets away from the core principles of what these medicines do, and, and that's heal. In today's episode, you will learn how psychedelic medicine improves people's biological and psychological well-being, where and why the stigma of psychedelic medicines have come from, and the importance of educating and empowering yourself to find the treatment method that works best for you. So without further ado, please listen and learn from my good friend, David Gray. Welcome to another episode of, well, not perfect. Well, I'm glad that you're here because you've got a lot of really good information to share with me and the listeners. I wanted to have you on the show because when I found out what you do or not what you do, but what you're informed on, I was really interested in it from like a professional standpoint because I have clients and then also personally just to continue to see what would help me grow, what would help me or my family evolve with. And so I'm going to just ask you a bunch of questions being completely uninformed Yeah, and you can fill me in. Treat me like a person off the street because... I don't know a lot about this and I want to just get into it and learn more from like a consumer standpoint and then also knowing if this would help some of my clients. So when someone comes to you and they're thinking about using, do you call it substances or what do you call it when you, like the use of what? Yeah. I mean, I, I tend to refer to the use of anything in these realms of psychedelic medicines as very much as medicine because essentially we're looking to treat or help individuals to move through symptoms to assist in their therapy and what other way to do so than with medicine right so Mm -hmm. that's kind of how i view it I, i specifically look at it as medicine and then kind of specify when they begin to talk about their specific symptoms and what it is they're looking to help themselves with and as well as uh, what they already come to the table with knowledge of, right? So we might be talking about a specific type of medicine, uh, such as ketamine or psilocybin or cannabis, even for that matter. But I tend to keep it in the categories for the sake of just really wanting to ensure that it's, it's being conveyed appropriately. Because when we go to calling them drugs or just general substances or 
referring to them in, in any way that's had a, a negative connotation attached to it in the past. We're only promoting certain stigmas that are attached with it. Got it. So you just said a couple of them. So there's ketamine, mm-hmm. cannabis. Mm-hmm. What were the other ones? Uh, psilocybin, which psilocybin. most people know as magic mushrooms. Magic mushrooms. Right. I like that word better. Yeah. <laughs> and then is there anything else that you had said? Uh, so the, the, there's a good variety. Uh, a lot of individuals, I would say the mainstream right now, uh, ketamine is nationally approved, FDA approved uh, for treatment. It started off as treatment for uh, substance or treatment resistant, uh, major depressive. And then as we looked at how ketamine has helped shape other forms of uh, symptoms and kind of helped individuals to move through the therapeutic process, uh, ketamine has been implemented for a multitude of different psychological disorders. so uh, ketamine probably right now is one of the most globally, or globally, but nationally known. And then uh, cannabis, cannabis itself, state by state, still not nationally recognized and still falls into schedule one drug, which indicates that it has no medical purpose. Huge history behind that. That's right? crazy that it's not considered a medical intervention, Absolutely. cannabis, after right. everyone has basically figured out how to self-medicate it, right. to use it for medicine. Absolutely. And it's still class one. So it blows my mind, and I think it blows the mind of most professionals in the field who, who work with these specific uh, medicines. And, and looking at it as like time and time again, we've found that the use of cannabis has not only been helpful with psychological processing, but uh, symptomology as it re- pertains to psychological disorders, but and then also physical ailments and helping individuals to curb uh, opioid addictions and things that just have, it has a huge variety of ability and yet is still deemed in uh, schedule one drug, which makes no sense, but it's it's all a product of the war on drugs, which continues to be promoted with no specific agenda in mind other than to eradicate drugs when if we look at the process, it hasn't worked yet. Why do we continue it? There's a whole other avenue of pursuing getting individuals the help they need, especially with addictions, that the war on drugs isn't going to be able to help and is just spending billions of dollars on this without an intention. And I mean, with progressive progressive politics and the economics and things like that, it can take decades to undo things that have been established. So in your opinion, do you see it being like decades to undo and kind of get to a place where the political level acknowledge that this can be medical or how long do you think it's going to take to kind of undo some of that stuff that's right. been done? So if we look back and you go back into the history, we're looking back into like the 1920s prohibition era. And out of that, you know, once prohibition's overturned, we have cannabis presented as uh, being this evil within society that they turn to um, project onto minorities as the root cause. Over time, uh, other movements like uh, during the, the hippie era, the, the 60s and so forth, it's projected on 
to them as like deadbeats in, in a substance in which uh, people who have no motives or uh, objectives in life are used. And, and there's constantly this focus and kind of way of projecting onto others, usually minority classes, uh, especially within substances. But these medicines specifically are being stifled in their process. And yes, it takes decades. It's been decades in the work. But there's also evidence and multiple research done to just show that there's significance. You know, within all of us, there's an endocannabinoid system. So that's why cannabis works so well, right? So like it, within each one of us, we have our own endocannabinoid system. Within the plant itself, it's referred to as the phenocannabinoid system, right? So when we ingest, smoke, inhale, consume cannabis, it's actually attaching itself to our endocannabinoid system, which is already in place, but helps to fill certain gaps in order to alleviate symptoms and in order to help individuals relieve pain, other uh, inflammation, other things like that. Combination of CBD, THC, two uh, specific cannabinoids out of uh, over 20 cannabinoids that are found in the plant. But cannabis itself, again, been decades in the making. It's long overdue. We're in a, I think more than half of the states at this point, if not half of the states are at least legalized. It's just on a federal level. We're still trying to make that fight for the getting it removed off of that schedule one. Got it. And so for the people that it benefits, is there an age range that is said to be okay in an age range like the younger that they say no? I mean, where where are the opinions at with ages because what I've been told is that cannabis and drugs can negatively impact a developing mind. And so it's not recommended for developing minds. So you could say that the brain develops till 26, 27 is also something that has been kind of shared in our field. So where does that stand in terms of recommendation for age and treatment? Right. So that's one of the things that I would say is still up for debate, depending on um, the results of case studies that still need to be fulfilled, long-term treatments that have yet to see very specific forms of uh, results within the research. I, I think, you know, as I look at it and as I look at the community that I've helped serve, I've seen individuals as young as eight and 10 who have been on a regimen of cannabis, but we're not talking cannabis um, specifically as most people would think of it in that these eight and 10 year olds are getting high. The, the, the beauty of cannabis is that you can actually get the effects, the desired effects of cannabis without actually getting high. And that, you know, when you're using the right ratios of like cannabis milligrams, CBD ratio to THC ratio, you're looking at working with the individual at where they are and not just saying and giving them you know a bag of pot and saying here you go smoke up we need you to use this in order to feel better it, it's very much a process in which uh, one thing i would very much highlight is if you're working with individuals you know any any individual that's working with these uh, specific forms of medicine 
that they're working in collaboration and they're completely honest with their doctors, uh, pediatricians, their, their network of health professionals, because I think the, the most important thing is making sure that you're using substances that are right for your own personal biology and all of our biologies are so different. There's actually a very interesting uh, diagnostic tool that they use to look at how an individual's genotype may perform under the use of cannabis. Like if you already have a 23andMe or uh, one of those Ancestry.com DNA tests, you can look at the DNA and compare it to these uh, cannabis-derived DNA testings. And they can give you kind of an outline or understanding of how those cannabinoids will work with your body, what kind of ratios. Now, again, the science is very new. I don't know how much I put into that. So I, I very much say, trust your body, trust your professionals. If you're not with the right professionals, make sure you're getting to the right professionals. Yeah. Therapists be working alongside the proper therapist. But yeah, going back to your original question, there's a wide range um, and specifically with individuals on the autism spectrum. So in Illinois, one of the qualifiers to get a medical card is being on the autism spectrum. And, and what you find in a lot of symptom reduction, a lot of reducing of anxiety and stereotyped behaviors within autism is that cannabis helps significantly. So there, and if you go to the Illinois uh, Department of Professional Regulation, you can get a whole list of what falls into diagnosable criteria or specific disorders and diagnosis that you can get on medical for. Yeah. And uh, as I'm listening, I'm thinking about how many people are going to be curious about alternative forms of treatment because their current traditional form of treatment isn't working. And right now in the field, what I see is that people will go the traditional route and then start to go to more alternative or progressive treatments if the traditional route hasn't worked. Mm -hmm. So I would imagine that people who are open-minded to this would be people who get the fact that like traditional routes don't work for everybody. And people who may be a little more closed off to this idea would be those who haven't had to go down um, the route of traditional treatment and either have it not work or they haven't even had to do it yet because they don't have a situation where they need treatment in general. So I would imagine that the people who are entertaining these conversations and more open to them are those people who have been through treatment and have just been more experienced and comfortable. But that kind of speaks to, I think, what happens to us as humans, which is once we're familiar with something, we're not scared of it and we can dive deeper into it. But when people are not familiar with something such as therapy or psychiatry or treatment resistant diagnosis or something like that, there's more of a discomfort, unfamiliarity, and, and fear. And I mean, you can generalize that into a lot of things. You know, we tend to not want to tap into things that we don't know what it means. But once we get familiar with treatment or get familiar with something, we're more willing to tap into it, more interested in it, and things like that. So I'm imagining that there's a lot of other psychological processes that are going on that set someone up to either be open to this or to shut it down. Because I've learned that a lot of people, 
say they don't understand or don't agree with something, but once they become exposed to it, all of a sudden they're more open to it. Have you seen people kind of have to walk that line or do you see kind of a different process for how people start to get open to this? Because it is new, relatively new, um, at least speaking from here in Illinois. Right. And I agree 100% with what you're saying. Uh, And furthermore, like we are at the emergence of a secondary psychedelic revolution, right? We're moving into an era now where psychedelics are becoming more researched. We have MDMA, which uh, street name of Molly, right? Um, MDMA or ecstasy. The, The components of MDMA have just passed through phase three trials with the MAPS organization, and it's waiting to be scheduled. You have things in the pipeline, such as psilocybin, which is up and rising in terms of helping not only, again, uh, with psychiatric, but with physical ailments, migraines and cluster headaches, things of that nature. But it's very much focused right now on getting approved for PTSD treatment, right? But I, I think that the big thing to pull from what you're saying is education, right? Until we're educated, or until we have a need to be educated, we're not necessarily seeking out this information. And I think that's just society as a whole. We tend to be somewhat lazy in what works works and what's works for others. We'll try before we go outside of the box, especially when things have negative connotations tied to them or stereotypes that have gone on generationally, which have beaten these medicines down into a position where it's very hard to see them as a first resource to turn to because they seem so extreme. But again, when you look at the nature of these medicines, it's it's not that we're a bunch of hippies sitting around getting high, just utilizing them to transmit our subconscious into different levels of different planes of being so that we can transcend our, our physical state. There's there is mind expansioning that happens. There is different things that come along with that, but if a lot of that has been either over glorified or over stigmatized in a negative manner, which gets away from the core principles of what these medicines do, and, and that's heal. You know, at the very core of them, when you have an individual who has treatment resistant major depressive disorder and their forms of treatment rely on going outside of the box and possible criticisms from their family members or peers, it's hard to get them to a place in which they can accept that as easily as it is to take an SSRI or to get on a benzodiazepine or to get in anything that's prescribed in westernized medicine. Mm -hmm. So the, the difficulty with that is not only breaking down the stigmas, but then having to do a big psychoeducation piece. And hopefully your clients coming in with open-mindedness and willing to do the research on their own, but also being willing as a professional to go above and beyond to help educate them, to give them resources, to turn them on to specific research that helps them to indicate like this may be the right treatment for them, Mm -hmm. but not that it is or has to be, Mm -hmm. but that it's a potential or possibility. And that's what I try to indicate to all of my clients is that, you know, I may or may not be the right professional to you. It's what I refer to as like my anti-sales pitch is like, <laughs> don't come back to me if you don't feel that we have that connection. If, if you feel that you need something else, I will absolutely get you to that person. I will get you to that 
place, that form of treatment, whatever it is that you need, I will be more than happy to, but I want you to question everything I say. I want you to question everything your doctor says, everything any person tells you as a means to build a modality of therapy and treatment that's right for you. Yeah, I agree with you because I was with a client yesterday and they told me that while in treatment, they were prescribed a medication and because the doctor prescribed it, they thought it was okay to take. And they started taking it and later realized that it wasn't just a sleep aid, but it is actually a mood stabilizer too. And that it was something that you couldn't just go off of. So it was their thought that this is like a unisom. This is something I can just take. The doctor said I could take it, so I could take it. And then when they realized it was a psychotropic medication, they can't just go off of it. They have to titrate off of it. And they felt very betrayed and very upset that they trusted a doctor to prescribe medications without, and they weren't asking questions. And so I said, you know, a general life rule would be that in every appointment you have, whether it's a doctor or a financial planner, whoever you're sitting with, is to always ask two questions at the end of the meeting, because then in the meeting, you are analyzing, you're listening, and you're kind of deciding what is my best question at the end, what hasn't been answered for me. And then asking those two questions, even if they seem to be silly questions or or not really serious questions, it's just the practice of asking questions. And like you said, really analyzing if it's the right fit, if it's the right recommendation, and becoming more educated because just when a doctor says take this medication, like for example, melatonin, um, it looks harmless, but it's not. You need to do your research, everything from how much Advil to take to how much melatonin to take. But we've, as a culture, created these like rules around what's safe and what's not safe. And then we just prescribe to it. And we're not really consciously consuming information and being conscious consumers really of what we're doing. And that includes therapy, you know, when we're sitting there and we're in a therapy session and the therapist is saying, you know, I want to work on your thought reframes. I want to help you reframe your thoughts so that you're thinking more positively. Right. And the client sits there and says, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. But then, you know, there's a second thought that clients can have, which is, wait, does that mean that you think I'm a negative person? Right. So there's a lot of things that we are kind of subconsciously processing, but we don't say out loud. And if we don't say them out loud, we can get misconstrued information. We can cross wires. And so we've got to ask questions like, why are you recommending a thought reframe skill? Why are you recommending melatonin? What are you seeing that makes you think that I need a mood stabilizer in addition to a sleep aid? You know, like, why are you doing that? Why? And then, you know, the, the part that's super important is that when you hear the answer, you have the right to either agree with it or disagree with it and have a really constructive conversation. And I see people kind of just taking the professionals or the authority figures point of view and just going with it. And then there's that power dynamic. I mean, it looks like you're kind of on that same wavelength. Like there's an authority and power dynamic going on at that point where the professional knows more than the the client or the consumer. And then you just kind of follow suit, but that's really dangerous. I agree. And, and looking at it, you know, when a doctor makes a 
a recommendation or prescribes a medication, it's very much that it's a recommendation of a medication that could potentially help you. The world of psychiatry is still, in my opinion, very much more an art form than it is a hard science. So they're making recommendations. This is what I recommend that you do, that you take this at this prescribed amount at this uh, frequency. But they see it as an individual handing them a prescription that they automatically have to go fill now, right? Right. So, it's not necessarily like antibiotics where like doxycycline is an antibiotic and or doxycycline is an antibiotic. That is like, if you have a science infection, you take doxy, right. right? That is science. That is more black and white. But the art form of psychiatry, we don't talk about that much. And it's so important because not every psychiatrist is treated the same. And I would not call a hospital and just see the first psychiatrist that was available. Absolutely. I would be seeing a psychiatrist that I've done research on. I've seen where they've specialized. And then I would interview them and do a consultation because there's a difference between going to a family doctor who prescribes antibiotics for a sinus infection mm -hmm. than it is a psychiatrist. But I feel that same way with dermatology. I feel that same way with um, ENTs. I, I feel like a lot of these specializations are art forms mm -hmm. based on experience. And we've seen how, if we're not careful, we don't get specialized treatment. We won't get individual treatment. We get tried, kind of treated like a blank slate or a generalized person. And we're getting the wrong medications. We're getting the wrong treatments. Right. Right. They're not looking at former notes. Um, there's a lot of ways that we can get prescribed medicine, prescribed ideas, prescribed treatments that are not what we need. I mean, I respect that. Yeah, everything you're saying in that it fits the same ideology that's applied to these medicines we're talking about here today and, and that there is no specific way to utilize them. It, it is very much an art form. And, you know, what I hope people would come to understand is, you know, based off of our conversation here today or any conversation they overhear or an experience that another individual has gone through that it's not typical for everyone to have those same experiences or not, you know, what I say here today or in, even in my own personal experiences isn't typical to what everyone else's experience is. So to educate yourselves, to continuously can move through an educational process and to really listen to yourself, your mind, your body, being mindful of the experience as you go through it. It's, it's something that's still very much in its infancy stages of really, you know, being able to help individuals to the potential in which it can fully help them. But it, there's still remarkable things that are going on with these medicines. There's more, you know, certain forms of these medicines still aren't able to be obtained in the United States. And there, there's forms of like ayahuasca, ibogaine, uh, those very culturally based herbal medicines that, that have a lot of power to them and a lot of significance behind them, but yet have to be able to like touch the westernized world and, and, and what the westernized world may do to them is, is a fear of mine as well. But, you know, as you look at it, there's, there's the constant need to be reevaluating, reevaluating your state of mind. Are you in the same place that you were? You know, I ended up with a multitude of different uh, 
psychiatric professionals over the course of my personal experience in dealing with anxiety and depression. I ended up with, in the beginning stages, being addicted to benzodiazepines because I did not know what I was taking. I was given benzos without giving anything else. And I was told to take one to two a day as needed. So what did I do? I took one to two a day as needed. I caught it early on, right? I was able to recognize a dependency that was latent within me and that without taking them before I went to bed, I was having difficulty going to bed. So I cut them out completely. Uh, I used to be a huge advocate for SSRIs and SNRIs until I stopped. I tried to stop taking them and I found that I had a significant difficulty in doing so. What actually helped me to come off of them, at least one of them at this point, has been the use of ketamine and how it's been able to help balance my mood out in the titration period. But again, had I not done that research, had I not looked into that, I might've thought something was wrong with me and that weaning off of these substances brings on a whole nother side effect, a whole nother system of withdrawal effects that our bodies might not be ready for depending upon how long we've been. So again, I'm still an advocate for SSRIs and SNRIs, but in a short-term duration as opposed to long-term as I once was. Is personal growth something that you've always been interested in, but you haven't really known where to start? If your answer is yes, then I wrote an entire planner series with you in mind. This planner series is broken down into five steps that are focused on helping you become more resilient and confident. Each step includes pages of insight and skills from my personal and professional experiences and ends with 30 days of space for you to practice what you've learned. It's as simple as that. Five steps towards growth and resilience. Learn more at www.buplanner.com. And be sure to check out the subscription option, which gets you a planner delivered to your door every month for the next five months. Since you're a well, not perfect listener, you can get 10% off your order using code. Well, not perfect. Happy growing. Your individual experience is invaluable because you're seeing it from a consumer client stance. You're seeing it from a professional stance, and then also your education and your training in this sub area of mental health is not necessarily very, it's not very common. I don't see a lot of people who are experiencing the treatment and giving the treatment at this, you know, kind of coinciding because what you're touching on is a very common experience. And we've kind of decided as a culture that SSRIs are now embraced and glorified and honored, you know, because mental health, take your medication, you know, there's, there's a lot on social media that's empowering, you know, pro-medication, um, being open and honest about it, but then there's not conversations really around the, the benefits of that, the disadvantages of it. We're not doing like the, the pros and the cons of anything. We're just all of a sudden saying SSRIs are great. Um, and ketamine is still stigmatized and kind of hidden and dark. So, as a society, we've decided what is okay and what's not okay. And your story is going to empower people to be like, oh, that sounds like me. That sounds like my dad. That sounds like someone in my life. And I want them to hear this because maybe there's an alternative way to come off this SSRI. I've been dependent on it because the side effects for withdrawal are too disruptive in my life, or this therefore means I need it. 
Um, so we make these assumptions without really getting like a more global perspective. And when we started the interview, I said substances, and then you said it's medicine. And I'm realizing that that is really the, you know, the defining factor for me is you're talking about this as a controlled medicine by professionals and consulted with professionals and research versus the recreational drugs or the recreational substances. And so we're not saying that seven or eight-year-olds are using recreational drugs. We're saying that they're using it for medicine, just like they use Ritalin, just like they use Trazodone, they use SSRIs. Like we are already medicating kids because they need it at low ages. So we need to be open-minded that the medicine doesn't necessarily need to be the historic medicine. It can be medicine that is progressive, is a little bit more in line with research. And what's not new is clinical trials and studies for treatment on children and people and humans. I mean, we're doing that with cancer treatments. We're doing that with dialysis. We're doing that with everything. So to all of a sudden say that it's not okay for mental health to experiment with trial clinical trials to me is just unfair. It's like, why does, why does all the other medical diagnoses such as cancer get clinical trials and treatment and placebo effects, but then mental health can't because we're scared of street drugs. Like that just, that makes me mad because that tells me that mental health is still considered to be the exception to the rule. Right. And I think a lot of it boils down to language, right? Like how do we conceptualize these things? How do we promote and communicate them? If you have someone who's utilizing cannabis in a recreational manner, which I have no problems against, but that you know continues to promote stigmatizing slang and difficulty and kind of promoting the benefits because you see only the negative side effects. It, it just tarnishes the medicinal purposes of it, right? So I try to be very careful in how I communicate these things as opposed to just saying weed or, you know, any, any other general, you know, weed or pot, right? I, I try to refer to it always as cannabis. It's just one thing that I've, I've really stuck in my head as, as, a, as it moves forward and as it progresses we need to be differentiating between the terminology that we use to, you know, solicit out of individuals these thoughts that that promote, like, I hear him saying this, why is he saying it this way? It's so much easier just to say pot. Or pot, weed, yeah. cannabis, yeah. But you hear people that are talking about pain relief from cancer treatment, and they say cannabis, they don't say weed or pot. So I hear it already in the cancer space or chronic pain space, but I'm not hearing that for anxiety, depression, attention deficit. I'm not hearing it right. in that way. Again, backing what you just said in that it, it follows more of a medical model because it's aligned with cancer, right? It's aligned um, with things in that nature that have close ties to a scientific medical model as deemed by society. There's so many different ways of looking at it, but when when you look at individuals who one of the one of the largest populations that came out of benefiting from Illinois moving into a medical model was when they allowed individuals with opioid addiction and use to 
get medical cards based off of that at the population of 65 and older who had unintentionally got stuck on these opioids to help with um, just the ailments of getting older, right? Like back pain, uh, going through cancer treatments, different forms of pain in general, moving towards a model in which you can use cannabis to help in a, in a synergetic way to intensify the, the opioid without taking as much, right? So you can titrate off of it. You can utilize the cannabis to then offset inflammation and pain. And a lot of that goes unseen unless you're working closely with these individuals. Do you have a problem with people who are using the medical cards to use it recreationally or to to supply it to people who shouldn't be using it? Do you feel like that's just kind of going to be a natural born issue when we start to distribute to the community? So I do and I don't. And it's a very tricky, it's a very tricky thing within my own personal reflections on it, because specifically you look at Illinois' medical model, and it's very capitalistic. It's very difficult for a lot of individuals to get in on the ground floor of, of owning a dispensary. It's very much then put in the perspective of, you know, only the wealthy can obtain and can benefit from owning cannabis uh, dispensaries or grow home houses and, and so forth. So our, mod our model, whereas we're moving in the right direction, still needs a lot of work. So you're saying like, cause it takes a lot of money to get the license and get the property to have a dispensary that the cost of the product is also high because they have to be, they have to pay their rent, they have to pay their bills. So are you saying that the consumer has to pay more money because it's so expensive to own the dispensary and that, Illinois makes it that way? That plus what Illinois and, and a lot of states do is they put on a recreational tax, right? So the recreational tax in Illinois can be up to, I believe, 32%. So you're, you're spending $100, you're actually spending $132 on a product that's been marked. So how do um, low-income or marginalized people who don't have the income resource get these? That's... That's where it's still relying upon like black market trades, right? Like because it's we don't have a system that is economically based and able to help individuals across the board, all of these medications, these treatments, ketamine treatment itself is expensive. You're paying for the doctor, the nurse to be on staff. If you're sitting in the room with the therapist, you're- Does insurance pay for it? And no, and then again, that's an issue. In, uh, insurance is only approves bravado, which is esketamine. It's um, after multiple bail treatments on an SSRI or SNRI, you're then able to take spirado, spirado, which is a nasal treatment. But the nasal treatment isn't right for everyone. There's a couple of ways, intermuscular, intravenous, internasal, and then sublingual. So you have these methodologies of, of getting the treatment and each one may be different based on the individual that's needed. But what you find is these ketamine centers setting up and, and, I, and don't get me wrong, I've come across a very a couple very lovely groups that are doing it right and trying to give back to the community 
and trying to get low income and minority populations who haven't had access to these resources that they have access now. But a lot of it is based around a capitalistic nature in which they're just trying to turn out as many clients as they can and unfortunately may not be giving them the right form or the right treatment that's necessary for them. That being said, like you can be paying hundreds of dollars for one ketamine treatment, whereas, you know, if you get an, a doctor who's willing and able and knowledgeable paired with a, a therapist, you can do the therapy with ketamine and get sublingual trochies, which are uh, dissolving tablets that you place under the tongue. And you can have a healthy relationship with your therapist who you trust, taking these forms of medicine which costs, I think, 16 treatments, $30. And you can be processing alongside them, doing this work for a minimal cost, but because there's not much money in it for the professionals or, or the system that's been built for these professionals, it's not the most way of achieving ketamine treatments. And, and that's to be said across the board with all of these treatments. It's very expensive to do the research, but there's little efforts to give back to the communities who really need it. And that's one thing I would like to see shift. Yeah. And you've always had a special interest and focus in your professional work to um, advocate and focus on minority and marginalized communities. So I know that in that, you know, conversation about the medicines and mental health and access to treatment that you're really trying to bring that all together in your professional work. Yeah, and in whatever way possible too, right? So if that's through additional psychoeducation, right? So like my, my, my role isn't to be able to say, you should take ketamine because I'm not a doctor. I can't tell you whether ketamine is right for you. I, I really believe that that has to be through the, the eyes of a doctor, right? I don't even want to say cannabis is right for you. I would like for you to be talking with a doctor. I would like for you to be working alongside your medical professionals. But what I can say is if you decide that this is the right treatment for you, I will be there to help you. Mm -hmm. And I will be there to help you in a way to make it as cost effective as possible and to find ways for us to acquire it for mm -hmm. you in the most cost effective mm -hmm. way. And where I sit, I would probably listen to a client who's exploring this and try to either consult and get educated myself for them, or I would refer them either temporarily or permanently to someone like you who is more experienced in it. So making sure that your therapist is collaborative and they're not holding you back from getting educated or back Absolutely. from consulting because they feel threatened about um, why you might be wanting more information. So Absolutely. you should always be working with a therapist that is open to what you want or need. And if they're not open to it, that they're professional enough to help you find someone who is open to it. Because not every therapist can be open to every single idea and every single concept. They're human, but it's our ethical duty to refer out when we can no longer treat due to conflict of interest, due to different belief systems, or if we're not able to get educated ourselves and bring that back to the client. So I just want to really empower people to have an open, honest conversation with their clinician and not be afraid to bring something up, not be afraid to question the therapist's ideas and things like that. Um, if someone wants to get educated on 
mental health treatment using these forms of medicine, where would they go to get real information, real research? Yeah, so there's there's a couple organizations, uh, the California Institute for Integral Studies, they're, um, they have, I would say, more of a professional standpoint, and they're more geared towards the mental health professionals or, or just general professionals. But MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, MAPS, uh, excuse me for not knowing the, the proper site, but maybe it's .org, maps.org or .com. We'll put it in the show notes. But uh, ultimately, I think, you know, if you go there and you just do some basic digging, you can start to see the big picture and how it's coming together. The, the, these are two organizations who I hold in very high regards when it comes to the research that's being done around psychedelic studies, the education that goes into it, helping individuals to expand beyond westernized modalities. Additionally, there's some books, uh, The Fellowship of the River, Sacred Knowledge, Consciousness Medicine, and How to Change Your Mind, all great books. But again, as you're reading them, you know, read with, you know, taking into consideration that these are certain people's experiences in the field that it doesn't apply to all. It's not, not all these forms of what they're going through, what they experience is applicable to all. I think one of the most important things, again, is, is as you're researching, as you're educating, to be questioning your own beliefs, your own uh, way of thinking and how it is that these specific medicines fit into your life as to not just rush into something because it's the next trend. You know, as ketamine has come up and institutions and ketamine clinics are popping up, it becomes easy to say, oh, I haven't been able to get treatment for my major depression. This is, this is what I have to do. And it's not, it's not always the right way. Some of these medicines might not biologically work well with you. There's, there's certain predispositions we may have that may make them exasperate underlying conditions that we may have that, that we shouldn't take these medicines. So again, consulting, and I'll say it time and time again, consulting with the, the medical professionals, educating yourself, and starting with these resources and slowly working yourself into them, not just jumping into them. Be mindful. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for coming on the show. And this is another episode of Well, Not Perfect. Thank you for listening to season two. Make sure you never miss an episode by hitting the subscribe button and consider leaving me a review. And for more information on all things podcast, check us out at Instagram, Well, Not Perfect, and DM us any questions you have and content that you'd love to see this season. See you next week.